This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Leaders and Legends in Government with Aileen Black on Federal News Network. One-on-one interviews with the people who've left a lasting imprint on the government and the nation. Now your host, Aileen Black. Welcome to Leaders and Legends in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm talking with Jim Williams, former commissioner of Federal Acquisition Service and current partner at Schombach and William Consulting. Jim has 30 years of successful federal government experience, both in public and private sector. He was responsible for delivering on enormous challenges, building successful multi-million dollar business operation in teams, forming strategic partnerships, and significantly turning around troubled organizations. Jim worked as a senior executive for over 18 years in several government departments to include DHS, GSA, and IRS. Jim's skills and many accomplishments have recognized through the numerous, and I might add numerous, awards. I'll just name a few, just uh, uh, um, the highlight of them. Uh, two presidential rank awards, four Fed 100 awards, Civilian Government Executive of the Year by Government Computer News, and DHS Silver Medal, which is one of the highest awards you can get in the first year. Wow, Jim, that's very impressive. Welcome to Leaders and Legend. Thank you, Aileen. So before we get start talking about your background, I would like to take this opportunity to ask you some questions about the current state of our industry. Uh, Jim, you're well-known, and I would categorize you as a legend in federal government business community in decades of accomplishments. You were the commissioner of GSA Federal Acquisition Service. With that experience in mind, I have a question. Battles and protests on major awards seem to dominate the headlines these days. An example would be the Jedi contract. Amazon was just recently able to get the judge to impose an injunction on the Jedi award. Do you think the procurement um, in contracting landscape has changed since you left the government and it has become maybe less com- more complex, I'm sorry, and less productive? I think in a way it's become more complex because you have different types of vehicles like the OTAs and, and the, the uh, things that uh, commercial solutions that DHS has the authority to do. So there's there's different ways that you can come into the marketplace on one hand. I think on the other, the category management initiative, which has been started under the last administration, supported under this one, has uh, has meant a consolidation of vehicles. And that in some way has simplified the go-to-market from a company's perspective. You have to be on these big GWACs if you want to be able to sell. Uh, I think there, you know, there's much more of a spotlight on federal acquisition than ever before. Do you have any advice for the acquisition leadership of today of dealing with this new complexity with the changes in the landscape on the procurement and contracting options? Well, I think, first of all, you have to be on these vehicles if you want to be a prime. I think in other places, I think a change that I've seen where a lot of large companies have had a partner as a sub underneath a small uh, service-disabled veteran-owned small business, underneath a women-owned business, uh, where a lot of agencies in terms of trying to meet those goals are going 
to what traditionally went to large business are now going to the small business, forcing these larger businesses to become a sub to these small businesses. And that's changed partnering relationships, I believe. Sounds like the time to start a small business. You had decades of government experience, but over the last 10 years, you've been in private sector, advising mostly tech companies. Over the last decade, um, the technology landscape has certainly drastically changed with the evolution of cloud computing, AI, and 5G. How do you believe this technology advances can change the way the government consumes and buys technology? Well, I think if you look back in time, Aileen, that you had the real users of technology long time ago is Department of Defense and NASA in weapons and space systems. Then all of a sudden, technology became something that really helped out on the administrative side of civilian agencies. I think the change you're seeing now is so much of the technology can go into the mission space of operations of both civilian defense and intel agencies, whether you're talking AI whether you're talking um, 5G and, and its ability to move decision-making quickly to the edge uh, and, and combine with things like IoT, where you can take a lot of information, a lot of data, and do your job differently. I think with AI, ML, RPA, to throw out those buzzwords, you can look at how the nature of work, and, and I'll give you an example, claims processing. There's a lot of different claims processing going on in the government, whether you're applying for Social Security disability, VA benefits, and all of that is a lot of, of what the President's Management Agenda called uh, low-value work. And if you look at the application of technology to maybe processing a claim without a human, I mean, you're looking at things that can really uh, change the customer experience, but change the nature of work inside the government. So I think that the technology's influence on business operations uh, has been a big change and is going to be even more so. I think the, the last thing I would add is the proliferation of data. We now have chief data officers. I think they're really just getting started. I think they've had their first meeting. I think how you're going to take all this data with new tools and apply that to how you make decisions, how you do work differently is all coming. There certainly is an opportunity for the government to save money uh, in doing these functions. How do you think it will affect the citizens, both positive and negative, the citizens that they serve? Well, I've being in government for a long time, I always believe it was important to be effective and efficient in the mission. And to me, it was always in that order. You've got to be effective first. And uh, you can do a lot of things that save money. There's a lot of good plans to save money, whether it's through you know, doing bots instead of having humans do work because it's cheaper and more accurate to use bots, uh, whether it's leveraging shared services so that you don't have everybody doing the same thing and building the same infrastructure over and over again. But I, I like the focus on the customer first. And I, and I like the fact that that movement, the customer experience movement, whether you're talking about when Charles Rosati, the commissioner of the IRS, came in, uh, there and, and said, how much money do you spend helping the customer co to comply with a tax system? That was really a revelation because at first I believe the IRS didn't have an answer. You know, they knew how much money they spent to enforce on the sort of the reverse of the Deming quality model, 
to get compliance on the back end, but he said, how much are you spending to help the customer on the front end because the tax system was complex? And I think starting with the customer, even if you're just starting at an agency, someday I think we're going to start across government and say, okay, looking at totally from the view of the citizen, that say you're a a 66-year-old veteran who's applying for VA benefits, you're applying for SSA benefits, Medicare benefits. How do you look at that experience from the customer standpoint? I think that's going to be something that really is going to make a difference. You're listening to Leaders and Legends in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm talking with Jim Williams, former commissioner of Federal Acquisition Service and the current partner at Schombach and Williams Consulting. Jim, one last question in this segment. If there was one thing you could change to continue the prosperity of the government leveraging these disruptive and yet productive technologies, uh, what what to become more efficient, what would that be? I really believe since so many of these solutions come from the private sector and what I've seen from being on this side of the fence, the government generally is not really open to communicating and partnering with industry. And and I don't mean that to be disparaging. I just, it's what I've seen. And I think, you know, whether it's trying new things, you know, pilot testing things, or just simply being more open with communications, I, I see examples where people say, well, I can't talk to you because we're thinking about issuing an RFI. Well, that's the time when you should be talking. And I always say if you, you looked at a graph and looked at the private sector, over time of an acquisition, their amount of communication increases. With the government, from the time the gleam comes in the eye to the time that when they issue the RFP, it shuts down. It should be just the opposite. So I think being more open would, would certainly help the government, trying new things, opening up, and, and even looking at in that requirements development phase, how do you talk to the industry to best understand the art of the possible? And we just... We don't do that enough in the government and, and with industry. Now, you've been working with, um, you know, private industry for the last couple of years. Um, is there anything that you're really, you know, an aha moment or something that you're very proud of that you've been able to accomplish to change that dynamic for some of the companies you help? Well, I, I, I hope I've done and provided value to my clients. Uh, I love what I do. I often say to people, Elaine, that I'm – I'm like Napoleon Dynamite. I don't have any cool manly skills, so I, I, I like government, and I like helping my clients, and I'm very blessed that I can work with people who I think what they provide is going to add value to the government. So I think trying to help with the understanding of how the government works, because it amazes me that companies who have been around for 40, 50 years, even servicing the government, still don't understand the inner workings of government. And where I can help clients, I think, is to best understand how the government truly works so that I can match up and have that marriage of what the government needs and what they provide. I'm speaking with Jim Williams, former commissioner of Federal Acquisition Service and current partner at Schombach and Williams Consulting. After the break, we'll find out from Jim what it's like in the day of the life of the commissioner of the Federal Acquisition Service. You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black. 
Welcome back to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm talking with Jim Williams, former Commissioner of Federal Acquisition Service and Curtain Partner at Schombach and Williams Consulting. Uh, Jim, let me ask you, when you were Commissioner of GSA's Federal Acquisition Service, tell us about that role. What is the responsibilities? Well, the role when I came in was the Federal Acquisition Service was just being created, and it was really a merger of the Federal Technology Service and the Federal Supply Service. And I was lucky that one of my favorite bosses, mentors, was Tom Ridge, who had just had the job of putting together the Department of Homeland Security, where I came from. And, in fact, Tom came out early on and and talked to uh, the leaders uh, of the Federal Acquisition Service. So, number one, my job was to bring those two organizations together to not have it be a hostile takeover of one versus the other, but really it was to become a merger to create something new and a new culture. And I, and I felt good about that. Uh, I, I love what that organization does. And people think of it, well, it's a bunch of vehicles. Well, when I was there, it wasn't just vehicles. We helped the warfighter, the firefighter, and we had a global supply organization that did incredible things. And it's not just Alliant and the schedules. It's also things like airline contracts, the credit card contracts, which is about, I think, three and a half million credit card holders. So a lot of interesting things. And one other interesting thing I found out that I was responsible for was treasure troves, which I'd never heard of. What is that? But what it means is if someone finds treasure on federal land, they couldn't do anything with it until they came to me as the commissioner of federal acquisition service, which was interesting. And then had to do, you know, decide what to do with it. Well, somebody found like a federal Confederate ship in a river and wanted to raise it. And they said, well, Jim, you got to tell them what to do with it. Well, we actually got the Navy to agree to work with the contractor to say, we'll decide what you can do with this. But a treasure troves are actually in the federal regulations. I always thought that was interesting. We also had the foreign gifts program, which any foreign gift from a foreign country that went to somebody other than the president vice president or first lady or the uh, vice president's spouse came to GSA uh, and that we had to dispose of it. And we had some interesting stories behind what we received and what we found in some of these gifts. Like what? Well, in one of them, I don't want to say what country it came from, but it was a a gift to a high-ranking security official in the Bush administration. Uh, There was a bug. Uh, Like a listening device. Listening device, device. yeah, which we— uh, it was never put in that person's office, but we found it when we were disposing of it. So that was interesting. I think also being a GSA later on, I was the acting uh, administrator of GSA, uh, which uh, I got to oversee presidential transition from Bush to Obama. And that was a fascinating experience, work with great people. Uh, and, you know, I got to actually under Presidential Transition Act of 1963, I officially designated Barack Obama as the official apparent winner of the election, and that was quite a thrill. Wow. So how much—it sounds like your responsibility from a dollar volume was quite large. What what was it like? Well, uh, the thing about the Federal Acquisition Service most people don't know is it's a business, and it does about, in revenue at my time, $55 billion. Wow. And that's if you don't count the credit card billion— $30 $30 billion that went with the credit card program. So just on its own, it did revenues of $55 billion. 
and we had almost no annual appropriations. So we had a P&L center, profit, loss, depreciation, marketing, rent, salaries. We had everything. So it was interesting for me to be responsible really for running a business within government. And I think if you look back in time, GSA used to be a mandatory source. One of the best things that happened to them in what's now the Federal Acquisition Service was becoming non-mandatory because they had to provide a great customer experience. And they do. Those people work hard. They care about their customers. They care about the mission. They think of themselves as government employees, but government employees supporting all sorts of missions. Now, there's some big complexities now at GSA with the combination of GSA and OMB. What do you think about that? Well, I think you mean GSA and OPM, OPM which uh, people are still looking at. And that was actually an idea that was in the Obama administration and even before. And I personally like the idea because uh, I think we're one of the few countries in the world that does not have a cabinet-level management agency. And I've always thought that whether you call it the administrative side of the house or the management side of the house, that's important to getting the job done. When you think about government employees who can't get their IT to work, they can't hire somebody, they can't get a contract in place, that's all the management side of the house. And, and I believe giving a higher level attention to management, even though it's a supporting the mission, but management excellence equates to mission excellence and better morale. And I, I think, you know, I think Margaret Weikert would say one of the mistakes she made was calling it GSA. Now, she changed the name of it, but the acronym was the same. So it looked like it was GSA taking over OPM. But putting those two organizations together that manage the people resources and the other, you know, contracting and other resources, whether it's buildings, contracts, putting all that together makes a lot of sense to me. Most companies are organized like that. Right. You're listening to Leaders and Legends in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today we're talking with Jim Williams, former commissioner of Federal Acquisition Service and current partner at Schombach and Williams Consulting. Uh, Jim, prior to being at GSA, you worked at uh, Department of Homeland Security as director of U.S. Visit. This was not, not too shortly after DHS was formed. Uh, tell us about those early times and what it was like to be a leader at a newly formed agency with such a critical role at the time. I think, Aileen, I would say, as most people would say, it was the best of days, the worst of days. I mean, we started with nothing. In fact, I was talking with some uh, DHS founding people like myself. The conditions, we had the office conditions up at NAC, Nebraska Avenue Complex, was just incredible. Funny story where they had to give us all sexual harassment training, and they ended up having to do it in the chapel because oh. they didn't have a space large enough, which seemed a little odd. Um, but, you know, it was people coming together. I came from the IRS. I was detailed with a, a few seconds' notice. Actually, I talked to my boss, Asa Hutchinson, who called the IRS the next day, talked to the acting commissioner. My good friend, Dave Mater, who did not talk to me, came down the hall and said, you start there tomorrow. I left pictures of my kids on my desk at IRS and went to DHS the next day. And it was a great experience, and people wanted to work there because it was after 9-11. And for the U.S. visit team, I can't say enough good about 
all of those people, the people we worked with at CBP, at ICE, State Department, Defense, all the people we work with, everybody was committed to saying, not on our watch. Let's put this in place. Tom Ridge announced in April of 2003 that we were going to put biometrics at the airports by the end of the year. No one could believe he said it. Nobody thought it was possible. And I'm not talking about myself, Alien. I'm talking about the people who came there every day, stayed sometimes till 7, 8, later at night, not because I wanted it to, because they cared about the mission. And they delivered. And that was, honestly, for many of the people I've talked to, and I just said this to somebody re- recently, it was the Camelot of our career. It was it was. We immediately started catching bad guys. We faced worldwide resistance, and now this is accepted and implemented around the world. Well, there's nothing better than to to get have a job that has a, a mission that makes a difference. Recently, the headlines have not been so kind to the Department of Homeland Security. Why do you think the big sway in public sentiment? Well, first of all, for the Department of Homeland Security, a place that I love, like I loved every place I ever worked, but I think if you look from a presidential transition standpoint right now and look at uh, what is the percentage of confirmed politicals, they're at the bottom of the list. So they've been through a lot of different changes, and I think really what they need is continuity of good leaders. And the people I work for there, you know, the, the Tom Ridges, the Michael Chertoffs, Jim Loy, Asa Hutchinson, fantastic leaders. Uh, and they were there for a while. And, and, I, and I think they need continuity of leadership. You know, I think a lot of the, uh, the policies around immigration and border security are, are controversial right now. Uh, a lot of them are, are people who work for DHS who are really following the law. And, they, and they, that's what they do. They want to follow the law. They want to implement the law. They want to do it with compassion. Uh, and I was sorry to see Kevin McLean go. He was the acting secretary, a great leader himself. Um, so I, I just hope for the best for DHS that they get permanent leadership and, and they can do something that allows them to continue to do that critical, critical set of missions. When you think about what they do, whether it's cybersecurity, counterterrorism, border security, immigration, and just the resilience, the response and recovery uh, they're doing right now. FEMA's doing right now with Mississippi. I mean, they're incredibly important things to the nation, and there are just outstanding people there at DHS that do that job every day. Uh, you know, I don't know if the, the average American understands that DHS also helps you know, ha- help people become American citizens every single day. Well, the the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, USCIS, is a benefits agency. And uh, a lot of people question, well, why should they be there? But I think after 9-11, everybody looked at, you know, these illegal aliens who should not have been in the country and say, how do we tighten up, whether it's, you know, from the, the State Department consular uh Affairs, or it's what became USCIS, IECBP, everybody. I think it was important that we did uh, put integrity into the enforcement of the immigration laws. I think that was very important. And and USCIS does a great job with benefits. They do confirm, you know, converse citizenship, and that's important. 
And as uh, George Bush said, we're a nation of immigrants. It what makes us stronger. And I think we always have to be open to people from other countries wanting to come here, whether it's to visit or to become citizens or permanent residents. And the more people come here, it allows us to be able to show them our values and maybe export those values back around the world. I'm speaking with Jim Williams, former commissioner of Federal Acquisition Service and current partner at Schombach and Williams Consulting. Coming up next, we'll talk about leadership and how marrying your passion and your skills can really drive your career. You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black. Welcome back to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black, and today I'm talking with Jim Williams, former commissioner of Federal Acquisition Service and current partner at Schombach and Williams Consulting. Jim, you know, uh, you, you really seem to have married your passion with your capabilities. Do you think that has contributed and fueled your success? Well, I, I feel like in government, I, I really found where I belonged, and I, you know, I was a business uh, undergraduate major. And then when I came into procurement, which is really the business of government, I went back to George Washington University and got an MBA because I really wanted to be better at, at business and the business of government, which was procurement. And then when Charles Rosati moved me over to the IRS modernization to head up program management, I loved that too. And, and being able to actually deliver something that helps the mission and then going from there to to U.S. visit, I, I had a very lucky and blessed career. I couldn't ask for anything better, and I just love government service. Well, I, you could just feel your passion when we were talking about uh, Department of Homeland Security earlier. Um, is there anything particular that you, you felt the most passionate about DHS or IRS? Well, uh, you know, it's easy for government employees to work somewhere and just love their mission. And I did everywhere I worked, at IRS, even Commerce, Education, GSA, uh, DHS in particular. Uh, that is just a, a mission that they say, well, you can leave DHS, but DHS will never leave you. Because you, once you're there and you're working as one of those missions, you just care about it forever. Uh, so I, I don't know how to answer the question correctly other than it's just something that it gets inside of you. And you just care about it uh, is one of the most important things in your life. And if you don't mind me adding, you know, talking about mission, I talked about OPM and GSA earlier. OPM, uh, I think, is a very important institution. And, and I don't mean to diminish either GSA or OPM. I think they both become stronger if they come together. That's, I think, why uh, the comment was that maybe the name should have been changed because really it's, it's, a, it's a stronger agency together. I think you're right. I think if, if Margaret, had, she said she was trying to save some money by not having to reprint GSA oh, we things. We appreciate that as a taxpayer. But I think <laughs> uh, you know, to make sure that it was something really coming together of two very important central government agencies, there's only three, OMB, GSA, and OPM, but bringing the two of them together to form something new, like a, a cabinet-level department of management or something like that, I think would have uh, made it go, go a lot easier. So let's back up to the beginning of your career. What was your first job? Oh, my golly. I've told people the story that um, when I 
out, out of college and I was looking desperately for a job and I answered an advertisement in the Washington Post. I went out to this place way away called Gainesville, Virginia, met with these two guys who told me how much money I could make. It sounded great. Told me about the great benefits. And I kept asking, what's a job? And they wouldn't tell me. And finally, I, I need a job. I said, I'll take the job. And they said, it's selling door-to-door burial insurance, which I almost laughed. I said, what do you do? Tell people they aren't looking good. You may want to buy some burial insurance. Later that day, I got a call from the Department of Commerce and I'd had some previous federal experience, but they offered me a job as a purchasing agent, GS4. And I'd previously been a GS3. I took the job as a temporary purchasing agent. They kind of somewhat moved me into contracting. And then I, I came into contracting full time and stayed as a what they called an 1102 in that job classification series for over 20 years and loved it and moved up to become head of IRS procurement eventually. So you've had a, a, a really amazing career in many different agencies. What was the strangest or oddest thing you had to do at work? Well, I haven't thought about that question. Um, the strangest or oddest thing, um, you know, when I, when I was at IRS and, and GSA, it wasn't strange or odd things, but somehow I got involved with doing trade negotiations with the government of Japan. And we, I worked on both the U.S.-Japan uh, supercomputer agreement, I believe, of 1990 and the U.S.-Japan computer agreement of 1992, which was a very successful agreement. We had to get in a, an agreement before the president, George H.W. Bush, actually landed. And it was a great agreement because it opened up the Japanese government procurement market of computers to U.S. suppliers. So it was very successful. The only thing people remember, though, about that time of that agreement was when that former president threw up in the lap of the Japanese prime minister. And everybody remembers that from our trip. But that was, a, uh, that was sort of the uh, other duties as a sign that I did for almost 10 years working on uh, helping out with trade agreements. And that was a lot of fun. <laughs> Any advice for somebody starting out today that would like to follow your uh, footsteps of success? Well, I, I don't know if, if I'm the person to follow. And, and, you know, people have asked me, should I move around a lot to stay in one place? I think both models work. But for somebody young, uh, I say, first of all, the, the rules are pretty simple. Work hard. Uh, I like to work. I, my, I had a father who worked very hard, and I, I like to work hard. But be good at analyzing problems. Be, be a, a really an analytical person who then can communicate well, both in writing and orally, because communication is so important. I would also tell people, learn about the bigger challenges. I'm amazed when I meet people who don't know the bigger challenges of where they work. Sometimes they don't even know their leadership chain. And it wasn't that I was ambitious as much as I like getting bigger challenges. And it's some other piece of advice I tell people, volunteer and look for the biggest problems in government. Those I gravitated to. If somebody said, this is too big, it's too thorny, can't be done, that's where I wanted to be. That's where you learn the most. That's where the fun is. You're listening to Leaders and Legends in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm talking with Jim Williams, former commissioner, Federal Acquisition Service, and current partner at Schombach and Williams Consulting. 
Now, Jim, you've spent decades in public service, um, and you mentioned the hardest problems uh, in the government. Uh, if somebody was starting out and they wanted to look, what agency would would you recommend? What are the, some of the hardest, gnarliest problems that really need people with passion and focus and and are driven to solve them? Well, I think, Aileen, they're everywhere. But, you know, I think it's good that there's a spotlight on all these legacy technology where we're spending so much money on keeping antiquated systems, whether you're talking about IRS, SSA, OPM. I think the focus there is how do you really modernize? And and when you're modernizing, you're not taking these antiquated systems, you know, that are COBOL, ALC, or database, something that is just not used anywhere else, and trying to modernize that, you're modernizing business processes. And all of that is very, very hard to do. And I think those are our our big challenges. I think another one that people keep trying to attack is identity. How do you get a a single set of schemes, scheme or, or whatever you want to call it, that allows us to uh, communicate and do business in a digital world between the citizen and their government at all levels, citizens and other places, uh, businesses. But I think we haven't solved all the, the new challenges with the digital world around identity. So I think that's that in particular is a big one. But I think almost every agency has huge challenges to continue to transform and to move at the speed of, of both the threat and the technology, because both of them are changing so fast. And our government has to find ways across the board to be able to react or get ahead of those threats and take advantage of those new technologies. There's such a shortfall of, of talent, though, in these areas. And there's quite a bit of competition for high-tech talent you have any advice for your government uh, executive, uh, you know, leaders out there that are are trying to, you know, recruit these folks? Well, I think that's a great question, and I'm sorry I didn't address it earlier because in my time, I was under the old retirement system. I really was, had somewhat golden handcuffs to stay 30 years. Here, with the new retirement system, people can go in and out of government, and I think really trying to entice people with what it feels like to serve that mission directly. Because if you can get people inside, they really love working and doing what they're doing. I'm very proud to say I now have a daughter-in-law who works for the federal government and loves it and, and wants to make a career out of it. At She's at NAFC right now. And if you look, her father worked in the government, her father-in-law, me, worked in the government. I haven't say if you want to recruit people to government, look at what their parents did. If they were involved in some sort of public service in some way, they want to serve. And I will tell you, it is just so rewarding. I I could not have asked for anything better than to have over 30-plus years in government. So I'm a shameless recruiter to try and bring young people in. You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm talking with Jim Williams, former commissioner of Federal Acquisition Service and current partner at Schombach and Williams Consulting. Next, the biggest challenge Jim sees for the next generation of executives in the government market. You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network.
Welcome back to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm talking with Jim Williams, former Commissioner of Federal Acquisition Service and Curtin Partner at Schombach and Williams Consultant. Um, Jim, let's take a step back. Where did you grow up? I'm a Virginia boy my whole life. My dad was a career naval officer, like your dad was career Army, and uh, grew up part of my life right on the naval base in Norfolk, Virginia, and part of it in northern Virginia. Never lived anywhere else. Wow. Was there somebody in your life that inspired you or an event that shaped you to become this, um, you know, public service, you know, oriented person that you are today? Well, I, I have to say my father and mother. You know, I'm a child of the, the greatest generation. My father joined the Navy before Pearl Harbor. My mother was a Navy nurse, or she called herself a nervy nace during World War II, and, and they were just incredible people. My, my father went to UVA, he was chairman of the Honor Council, so he instilled integrity in all of his kids. Uh, and, you know, he served himself for 32 years in the Navy until he retired 100% disabled. And I, I guess I didn't think about it, but he was Supply Corps, and I kind of went into the supply side of government. So I like what I was doing. I, I wish my father had known more um, what I did because I, I really felt like I was somewhat following in his footsteps. Now, you, the way that you've said it uh, gave me a vision that the if I went back and talked to the 22-year-old Jim uh, and asked him if he would end up 30 years later in the position that you are now, what, what would you think he would have said? I probably would have said, do you have any beer? <laughs> I mean, I was <laughs> honestly not that mature at 22. I, I didn't come into the government until I was 25. I had no clue what I wanted to do other than I, I loved history. I wanted to be a history major, but I chose business because I really, you know, I like math and I, and I wanted a job someday. So I really had no thoughts about where I was going to go. I'm still wondering. So tell me about an, an accomplishment or a mistake that shaped your career and any advice or lessons learned by that. Well, I, I think I've, I've made quite a few. Um, I, some of them, I mean, once when I was doing a U.S. visit, I was actually an employee of the IRS working for DHS. I actually got the lowest rating of my life. And it's not a, uh, so much a mistake, and, and maybe it is because I wasn't talking to the IRS at all. So they, it was a new commissioner. He didn't even know me, and maybe that was my fault. But the the lesson learned that I tell to young people is something bad is going to happen to you at some point in your career. It's going to seem totally unfair uh, and undeserved, unjust, and it's going to be all about how you react to that. And and you know what do you do next? And I don't know what the right answer is there, but I, I just think you have to be ready for something that uh, happens to you that is not fair. It's not good to you, but it's a question of uh, like anything else in life. Something gets thrown at you. How do you react? You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm talking with Jim Williams, former commissioner, Federal Acquisition Service, and current partner at Schombach and Williams Consulting. Um, 
your career and success have truly been inspirational. Any pearls of wisdom you might have for the next generation of, uh, we've talked about government. Um, How about technology owners or technology executives? Well, I I think for anybody who wants to do work for the government, whether you're working for the government or whether you're uh, working for a contractor trying to help the government, uh, always think of mission first. Because uh, you know, I believe we are the most important country in the history of the world, and I believe our government is very, very important. It's an honor to serve, and you should always be thinking about how do we make our government better and our country better because I think we're important to the world. And I've, I've had the opportunity to work for you know, people who inspired people to, to feel that same way. Jim? Is there anything I have not asked you about that you would like to share with our listeners today about being a leader and a legend? Well, I don't feel like a legend, and I, I, I've always enjoyed leadership um, and working around great people and working for great people. And I often tell um, upcoming leaders that, you know, you wear two hats. One is the organization you lead, and the other is being a good teammate, and I think that's important I think being a good leader, you know, in these days where it's hard to keep good people, you've got to value them. You've got to be a good listener. Uh, You've got to ask them, you know, what do they need to get their job done? And I think as a leader, you've got to make sure that you look like somebody who and is somebody who doesn't put themselves first, puts the people and the mission first. And... I think, you know, when I look at the role models I've had in terms of my parents, Tom Ridge, Charles Rosati, Admiral Jim Loy, Asa Hutchinson, these were great leaders who really inspired you to be bold. And that what I liked about all of them, they were decision makers. They knew how to listen to people but then make a decision to go forward and then do so in a bold way. And I think that's important for leadership. You've been listening to Leaders and Legend in Government. My guest today has been Jim Williams. Jim, I just want to thank you for joining us today and sharing your personal journey and some very valuable advice. I'm Aileen Black. Thanks for listening. My pleasure, Aileen. You've been listening to Leaders and Legends in Government with Aileen Black. Subscribe to this podcast at Apple Podcasts or Podcast One. Podcast One.